I don't know, Christianity just doesn't seem rational to me. I just don't get it. Like, there, there's so much stuff that doesn't make any sense. It seems like it's really anti-women. As a woman, if I'm going to be a Christian, does that mean I'm less than? Is it just me, or does the Bible seem completely outdated? outdated. All this stuff about slavery and women being mistreated. And it seems like Christians completely ignore science. Doesn't the Bible teach you to hate people who don't think the same way you do? Well, I want to say hi to everybody at all of our campuses, people joining us online. Uh, we have a really important topic that I want to talk about. There's a guy named James Michener. He's one of the best-selling authors of the 20th century. And when he was a very, very old man and had suffered a great deal, he wrote his memoirs. And he started by uh, remembering an event from his childhood. This is how it went. The farmer living at the end of our land had an aging apple tree that had once been abundantly productive, but had now lost its energy and ability to bear any fruit at all. The farmer, on an early spring day, I still remember, hammered eight nails, long and rusty, into the trunk of the tree. Four were knocked in close to the ground on four different sides of the trunk, four higher up and well-spaced about the circumference. That autumn, a miracle happened. The tired old tree, having been goaded back to life, produced a bumper crop of juicy red apples, bigger and better than we had seen before. When I asked how this had happened, the farmer explained, hammering in the rusty nails gave it a shock to remind it that its job was to produce apples. Was it important that the nails were rusty? Maybe it made the mineral in the nails easier to digest. Was aid important? If you're going to send a message, be sure it's heard. Could you do the same next year? A substantial jolt lasts about 10 years, the old man said. Pain is nails hammered into a tree. And the nails always come. The book of Job says, Hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. And we want to believe that the nails, the pain, the suffering hammered into our lives, yours and mine, will somehow make us more fruitful, more productive. But what we know for sure is trouble comes. I was in an event not long ago where a young woman was talking about her dad. He was a brilliant scientist and a devoted father and could make sense of everything. She talked about how he would explain to her, but in a way filled with magic and wonder, the connections between the second law of thermodynamics and the first sentence of Anna Karenina. Like every father talks about that. But her story was filled with sorrow because this brilliant father of hers suffered courageously with depression. And eventually the depression won. And the room was not big enough to hold all the grief. A man I know is diagnosed with terminal cancer. And his brother cared for him while his body wasted away. And then, very unexpectedly, his brother, his caretaker, died instantly of a heart attack. And I watched that man at the funeral of his brother, the clothes hanging from his body like a scarecrow, burying the brother that he thought was going to bury him. A wonderful young boy grows up in a church, but he's different. His patterns of attraction are different. He is made fun of and taunted and not wanted. And what should have been his safest place was dangerous to him. It was a long time ago, but the wounds still fester in him. 
I think sometimes if there was such a thing as a painometer, if it were possible to measure units of pain, like we measure the depth of the ocean, how large would the sea of human sorrows be? This is from the book of Job. If only my grief could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. Amazing statement from Job, like God is shooting poison arrows at me. And that's just one life. In 2004, an earthquake under the Indian Ocean unleashed the amount of energy equivalent to 550 million times the energy of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And 250,000 people were killed. And every one of them was somebody's son or somebody's daughter with hopes and dreams. And in the days that followed, newspapers and conversation forums were filled with the question that we think about this weekend. Is it possible to believe in a God who is all-loving, so he wants what is good, and all-powerful, so he's able to make what is good, in a world with so much suffering and so much evil? Archibald McLeish wrote a play about Job uh, where uh, he expressed this problem in a single line. If God is good, he's not God. If God is God, he's not good. So it's striking that one of the books that is most troubled and perplexed by human suffering is the Bible. The Bible has an awful lot to say about suffering. Really, the first two chapters in the Bible are about the universe before suffering, and the last is about existence post-suffering, but most everything else in between is about suffering. Sometimes, maybe most of the time, we bring suffering on ourselves as a consequence of our actions. Show of hands on this one. How many people have ever gotten a speeding ticket? Just take a look around the room. Second question. How many were actually speeding when you got the ticket? Uh, I got a ticket a while ago, and my first thought when I saw the flashing lights was, why me? Other people are way worse drivers than me. And the answer, of course, is I was speeding. And in the Bible, there are places like the book of Proverbs that offer wisdom about this. Drive wisely, parent wisely, handle your money wisely, your sexuality, your anger, your words. Don't blame God or the universe or other people if you've made your own mess. And we all do. And we all need that wisdom. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, there are way more passages in the Bible that wrestle with the mystery of suffering. And mostly, the biblical writers don't explain suffering to people. Mostly, they protest suffering to God. From the book of Exodus, with Israel's slavery in Egypt, to the suffering of Job, to the emptiness of the writer of Ecclesiastes, to psalms of complaint, to entire books like Lamentation, how long, what for, why, God, have you forgotten? Do you hear? Will you act? The Bible, so fascinating, is not mostly written by people who explain evil and prove God's existence. It is written by people who are disoriented, who are overwhelmed, who are troubled by evil, like us. I hate suffering and evil and hurt. I hate that people, people I love, have to carry burdens that crush them, that are unfair, that are unrelenting. I wake up at night sometimes, troubled by that. And, and I think of others who suffer way worse than I do, and I'm chastened. And I'm reminded we all must find a way to live. 
we almost find a why to live. All of us, Christian, atheist, Buddhist, Muslim, skeptic, none of the above, all of us are united in the fellowship of grief and hurt and pain. And it's the strangest thing. If you ask people why they don't believe in God, the existence of pain and evil and suffering is probably the number one answer. And yet, so a writer named Barbara Brown Taylor that talks about this, most religions are actually born from suffering. A young, very entitled prince named Siddhartha leaves his palace and sees a sick man and an old man and a dead body for the first time in his life and decides to devote himself to the problem of suffering and Buddhism begins. The story at the center of Israel is an exodus out of Egypt when the people of Israel were enslaved and they did not know why and their children were being murdered. Christianity began with the life of Jesus who was impoverished and hounded during his ministry. The Gospels are unique among biography in focusing mostly on his humiliation and crucifixion. They're sometimes called the death story with an introduction. The prophet Isaiah says about him, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And our outrage at unjust suffering actually points toward the existence of God. There's an Oxford professor, C.S. Lewis, who wrote how for many years his main reason for being an atheist was that the universe was so cruel and so unjust and so unfair. But over time he came to realize that if atheism were true, there would be no grounds for this complaint. There would be no reason to expect justice in the first place. Lewis writes, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so unjust and cruel. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world really was unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please me. Atheism turned out to be too simple. Deep down, we know there is such a thing as justice. There is such a thing as fairness, and it is not arbitrary, and we are rightly angered when it is violated, and we demand justice. I read years ago about a guy, David Hagler, who is program director for the Los Angeles Sports and, and the Law Chapter, and he also works as an umpire. And this is his story. He says, I was driving too fast in the snow in Boulder, Colorado, and a policeman pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket. I tried to talk him out of it, telling uh, how worried I was about insurance and, and that I was normally a very careful driver. And he said I should go to court and try to get it reduced or thrown out. The first game of the next baseball season, I'm umpiring behind home plate, and the first batter up is the same policeman. I recognize him. He recognizes me. He asks me how the thing went with the ticket. I tell him, you better swing at everything. <laughs> There is such a thing as justice. Where did it come from? See, the whole notion of justice presupposes, demands that existence is more than just a universe full of a bunch of atoms rearranging themselves. There is not just a way things are. There is a way things are supposed to be. Evolution is simply about the survival of the fittest, but that is not enough to explain moral reality. It explains a lot, but not that. Innocent people should not starve. They should not be oppressed. They should not be abused. 
Now, none of this proves that there is a God, but it does show that our outrage at unjust suffering is actually a hard thing for secularism to account for. Secularism sometimes offers the illusion of control. It's kind of ironic. Because of medicine and technology and wealth, we have reduced many forms of suffering in our day. We live longer, healthier, cleaner, safer, more educated and affluent lives. But that very progress often feeds the illusion that I, that we are in control. Often, we want to make sense of suffering because we think if we can make sense of it, then we can avoid it, we can control it. If people hear about somebody contracting lung cancer, very often their first question is, did he smoke? Because I cannot smoke, then it won't happen to me. I can parent better, then my kids will turn out the way I want. I can work harder, then I won't suffer vocational pain. I can adopt a healthy lifestyle, and then I won't lose my health. Ironically, we suffer way less than people in the ancient world did, but we fear suffering way more than they did. In the ancient world, by contrast, part of wisdom was to cultivate awareness that suffering is inevitable. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus said that you should constantly remind yourself and those nearest to you of your vulnerability and your morality. He said one time, what harm is there while you are kissing your child to murmur softly, tomorrow you will die. Of course, Epictetus' kids all ended up in therapy. But in the ancient world, they knew about suffering. In medieval Europe, 20% of all children did not reach their first birthday. 20%. 50% of all children died before they were 10 years old. And people in that day loved their kids just as much as you and I do. The average lifespan at that time in the world was about 35 years old. They had a worldview that could make sense of suffering far better than most people in our day. When we think we can control it or uh, use technology or legislation to outlaw it. And one of the great questions you have to ask of any worldview is, what does it have to say to a suffering individual? A biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins describes the message of secularism like this. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind forces and genetic replication, some people are gonna get hurt, other people are gonna get lucky, you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. First church I worked at, a young girl named Lori died of renal disease. I cannot imagine sitting at the side of her bed and saying, some people get lucky, not you. No rhyme, no reason, no justice, no hope. I believe that despair is not just bad and that it is not just unpleasant. I believe it is wrong. It is incorrect, it is false, it is based on a false look at the world. It's a strange thing about suffering. Suffering points us beyond ourselves. We often try to numb our pain with work or shopping or comfort foods, that's interesting language, or a forbidden website or a few drinks. Every addiction begins as an escape from pain, every one of them, and every addiction ends with enslavement to pain, every one of them. We often try to hide our pain. There was a, a famous story back in the day in the Manual of Psychological Medicine. It was published around 1850. Uh, an Italian actor went to see a doctor 
about a depression that he suffered from that he despaired of ever curing. And the doctor recommended that he go to see the acting of a famous comic named Carlini. The doctor said, your depression would have to be very deep indeed if the acting of the fabulous Carlini does not remove it. And the patient sighed, I am Carlini. A friend of mine named Lou Smeads said that we can distinguish between two primary ways of suffering. And this is where suffering and hope begin to intersect. Lou used to say, there's suffering from, and then there's suffering with. We can suffer from something. We can suffer with someone. We suffer from painful events and experiences and losses large and small, loss of sleep or bad traffic or bad hair days or divorce or bankruptcy or cancer. When you are suffering, when you're experiencing something that you very much want not to, you are suffering from. But then there's suffering with, and that's something, oddly enough, that people choose. This is voluntary suffering. We stop what we're doing. We sit beside a hospital bed. We listen to a mom who has lost her child. We bring a meal to somebody who has lost a parent. Somehow, I sit with my daughter in her most anxiety-filled moment, and I can't fix it, and I can't make it go away. I can do nothing but hurt with her. And yet, and yet, my willingness to hurt with her helps her somehow. She is less alone. Part of her burden is somehow shifted to me. And we have a bond, a connection. I've seen this, I've experienced this, that is deeper than it was before. Suffering with can hurt every bit as much as suffering from. But it often involves a breathtaking kind of goodness and nobility, and it brings us to the heart of the story about Jesus. Jesus was the master of suffering with. See, there's never been anybody who did this like him, ever. He suffered with lepers, and he wept over lost people, and he listened to the scandal-ridden, and he had compassion on the doubters. He suffered rejection and, and mockery and humiliation on behalf of all sinners. And the place of his ultimate suffering was the cross, suffering from sin and guilt and death and, and suffering with you and me. We wonder in our pain and suffering, where is God? He is there on a cross, nails pounded into a tree, but first pounded into the hands of God. Only Jesus reveals to us what no human being had ever imagined before him, a wounded God, a broken God, a scarred God. John Stott, who is a, a wonderful friend of our church and so many others, wrote a book about the cross of Jesus. And he says this, I have entered many Buddhist temples and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed with the ghost of a smile. But each time I turn away again to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, plunged in God-forsaken darkness, this is the God for me. He entered our world of flesh and blood, death and tears. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. 
Isaiah said this about him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. See, we do not honor life. We do not honor those we love. We do not honor the courage of so many who have borne loss nobly before us by capitulating to despair. And so we fight. Jesus does not tell us that we will not suffer. He says we will not suffer alone. There's a time when the disciple Thomas said that he could not believe that Jesus had really been raised from the dead. And Jesus appears to him and says to him, put your fingers there. See my hands. This is so amazing. In other words, Jesus has a new resurrection body. It is real. He is able to eat. He is able to do remarkable things, pass through a locked door. But in his resurrected body, he still carries the scar of those nails. God says one day he will wipe away every tear, but Jesus still carries his scars. And the early followers of Jesus were staggered by this. And they wrote that maybe Jesus retained his scars not because he couldn't heal them, but because they reflected his love more than unwounded hands ever could. Maybe there is a beauty to a wounded body that an unwounded body does not know. Paul says that Jesus knew unimaginable glory, that through him the stars and the skies were made. I think often we want to turn our scars into stars. Jesus turned his stars into scars. Who would make up a story like that? And this points us to our calling, why you and I are here now as a church. Paul says the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, if we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. There is suffering from, but there is suffering with, and we are called to suffer with. How do we suffer with somebody who lived 2,000 years ago? Well, Jesus told us how, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Jesus points to suffering human beings, every one of them, and says, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. I weep, I bleed, I hurt, I die. And when we mourn with those who mourn, and when we listen, and you all do this, when we sit beside somebody who is sick, when you spend time and energy to come alongside somebody who does not have a home, when you visit an injured veteran in a VA, when you sponsor and take the time to write a hungry little child, when you give, maybe even give sacrificially to those in extreme poverty, when you lead a little life group so that somebody who is alone or somebody whose heart is breaking has a home, you are suffering with Jesus. You are doing that. And suffering is not in vain. A deep need for suffering people is that good can come out of their suffering. Not so much that it can be explained, but so that it can be redeemed. And I think of people I know, a parent who loses a child to drug overdose wants to help other parents. A mom who loses a child to a drunk driver starts an organization to fight drunk driving. A man who loses his legs in an accident ends up devoting his life to helping quadriplegics. The movement of Jesus got started by two moments, really two moments, ultimate suffering in the crucifixion and then the ultimate hope of the resurrection. Jesus and then those who followed him 
endured suffering in a way previously unknown to humanity because they had a hope previously unknown to humanity. And when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he put it like this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. It's amazing words by a man that knew a lot about suffering. Paul had been shipwrecked and flogged and stoned and imprisoned and persecuted and starved and impoverished and ultimately he was martyred. And yet he calls these troubles light and momentary. Are you kidding me? Nails pounded in a tree. What he's saying is, you put them all on one scale, every tear shed by every broken heart. And then on the other scale, you set a radiant, unending, eternal goodness that we cannot yet see, but Jesus can and promises is coming. And Paul calls that eternal glory. Is the glory then worth the trouble now? Is the hope that big? And the best I can offer is not nearly an adequate picture. It's just the best I can do right now. Our first daughter was born after 12 hours of uh, terribly excruciating labor. Um, she was sunny side up, I think was the technical medical term, which meant that the hardest part of her head was pressing against my wife's spine. And at one point, the doctor reached into my wife's body and wrenched Laura around 180 degrees. And Nancy yelled, and I had been instructed in Lamaze never to use the word pain. So I said to Nancy, are you experiencing some discomfort? And that didn't help very much at all. And they had to suction that little body out of uh, my wife so that when Laura came out, her head was way misshapen. And I thought if Laura could have spoken during those 12 hours or in that first second when she came into this world, I think she would have said to me, why would you do this to me? Why would you put me through this? And I would have tried to tell her, oh, my child, I know. It's awful. I know, I know, I know. But, you know, now it's been 33 years later and, and she's known the glory of being alive. She got to learn how to walk and talk and read and write and made friends and found a vocation and fell in love and had a child of her own. Her life now has been about 22,000 times longer than it was for those 12 hours. And she could not, did not know then the life that lay before her. And the gap between a little baby and an adult is nothing next to the gap between a finite human being and the infinite God. And the gap between those 12 hours and the 33 years that have followed it is nothing next to the gap between a single earthly life and all of eternity. And it's not just that. Tim Keller writes about a wonderful line that Tolkien had in the Lord of the Rings right at the end. Sam Ganji sees Gandalf and he says, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, it is. It's not just that suffering is going to end, although it will. It will be healed. It will be reversed. It will be undone. Everything sad is going to come untrue. C.S. Lewis had a wonderful line one time. He wrote that heaven will work backwards. And it's already started. Heaven has already turned the cross, which was the ultimate instrument of violent hate and injustice, into the ultimate expression of triumphant love. And it will one day turn agony, every agony, your agony, into glory, endless glory, unimaginable glory, and eternal weight of glory. 
And so we mourn with those who mourn. Love the people around you like your family. Nance and I have a little life group. And just this weekend, I was with one of our kids whose dog had to be put asleep this week. My dad got out of the hospital and he and my mom are walking through uh, a real heavy season. And I just got back from that. And to be with people that I know, that we know, and that we love is such a gift. And I hope you have a little family like that. I hope you have a little circle of men and women who love you, who will be with you when you suffer. Nails pounding into a tree, that is the story of our world. But hope is coming. Being part of a church means we all have people to suffer with. These are people in my life group. Uh, I've told you before, in every life group, there's at least one extra grace required person. And if you look around and you can't tell who it is, it's you. Well, with this little group, it's me. But that's okay, because they love me. These are the people that Nancy and I have prayed with, have laughed with, have cried with, have shared with, have eaten with for sure, have ached with. Some of the hardest moments of my life are moments that I and Nancy have named and walked through together with them. And I hope you have that. I want to encourage every single one of you, find a little group like this. If you need to pray, pray. If you need to persist, persist. Because I know suffering will come. I hope it doesn't find you alone. I'll see you next week.